Howdy. I am from Texas, and that is what we say. And I was both born in Austin, and uh, not too far apart in our incubators, both six weeks premature. And uh, we met in our senior year of college, got married a week after we graduated from Baylor, and uh, now we have about three children, and I see one of them out here this morning. And uh, we have uh, not only Reed, who works with Pine Cove, but we also have Laura, who uh, she and her husband work with Crew, which is Campus Crusade for Christ. And we also have a son, Stephen. And all together, they have given us eight wonderful grandchildren from four through 17. Now, well, well I didn't, much, didn't do very much to get the grandchildren, really. That was just a gift from all those kids. But I am asked oftentimes, well, okay, you've got some kids in ministry. That's pretty good. Uh, is, is one of those three children your favorite? And it's kind of hard to really talk about that in a setting such as this, where you have to sort of be honest. But I'll give it my best shot. Our youngest son, Stephen, works with car dealerships. And he's over quite a few of them. And so if you were to press me on the Sunday morning and say, who's your favorite? It would not be the first two who are in ministry. It would be Stephen because he gives us great deals on cars. <laughs> now, this morning, we're going to jump into the book of Hebrews in a couple of minutes. But I want you to know that it's a formidable task to look at a book that is so filled with the Old Testament in these New Testament times. Very few of us would ever understand that we were actually that wild olive branch that was grafted in to the rich olive tree of Judaism. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11. And whenever I get to fly on a plane, which I have done frequently, it, uh, as we train pastors in Southeast Asia, it is my opportunity frequently to talk to Jewish people. And one of the things that I love to do is to communicate with them that it is because of them and what they believe that I am doing what I am doing today. And so I thank them that this wild olive branch was grafted in. And uh, I discover that they're not as aware of those truths as we actually are. And this morning, I want to make you even more aware of truths that we should be aware of. As we look into the book of Hebrews, it does talk about this thing that is somewhat difficult to understand because it's all ritual. It has to do with a tabernacle. But before I jump into that, I want you to jump in with me into the law. You know what the law is as it is described in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Torah, and it specifically relates to the first five books of that Old Testament. Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law to the new generation, the first having died in the wilderness. And so this law is actually comprised of three parts. Now, I found this extremely helpful because most of the time when we think of the law, we think of simply the moral law. We think of God in somewhere around Exodus 25 handing to Moses on Mount Sinai those Ten Commandment tablets. And we think of that as the law. But it's so vastly much larger than that. 
Actually, there are 50 chapters given in the Old Testament plus four in Hebrews to that law, which is much more expansive than just those 10 commandments. There's the civil law. And if you were to look at the civil law, you would discover beginning somewhere in Exodus 21 that there were all kinds of laws in regard to how we should treat other people. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, you have laws concerning personal injury. In chapter 22, laws concerning theft. And then laws concerning property damage, laws concerning dishonesty, and it goes on and on. And the founding fathers of our nation loved the Bible. We were built on so many of the principles of righteousness found here in God's revelation. Therefore, you will find in our laws much of what you will actually read if you ever do read through Exodus. Now, Exodus is easier than Leviticus. Do you agree? Because in Leviticus, you have not the civil law, but you have the ceremonial law. And if you ever really want to go to sleep at night, having a necessary book to read as a sleep aid, I recommend Leviticus. God's not going to strike me down for saying that, but it's pretty much true, isn't it? That Leviticus is somewhat difficult to understand because it's the way the Jews were told to ceremonially worship God. So you have the civil law, you have the ceremonial law, and you have the moral law, which we see in the Ten Commandments. So those are the three parts. Now, let me ask you this. How would you describe the law? Let me give you three words. Number one, I would describe it as good. I know it gets a bad rep today, but the law is good, much like x-rays are good. If I am concerned about something going on in this body, an x-ray can reveal that problem to me and to the medical professionals. The law is good in that it reveals problems. The law is somewhat like, well, here it is, a speed limit sign. You know, when Ann and I were coming this morning on Luke 323, we're pretty new to Tyler. We live here now since December, and uh, we're getting acquainted with some of the speed limits, some of which we abide by and some of which we just smile at, (laughs) as you. Uh, But uh, on Luke 323, the speed limit was 50. We're a little bit late for a prayer time. And so uh, I asked God for special grace uh, that I might go just a little bit in excess of that 50-mile-an-hour speed limit. But you know what the 50-mile-an-hour speed limit does? It really protects us. It's a safeguard placed there by the constructors of the road and people that legislate, and they feel like it's for our good. And it is. But there is, secondly, not only is it good, but there is a limitation to it. It cannot make us do good. It only reveals that which is law. So there's something within that law that reveals but cannot fix the problem. So we need something greater, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That law points to something greater. It points to Jesus Christ, who, when we place our trust in him, gives us a freedom not to run independently of what is good, but to actually do according to what is best as God reveals it to us. It's only then that we really have the freedom in knowing Christ 
freedom from the law to do what is good because we're motivated personally. I have found that the law does something within me. As I was traveling this morning, I discovered that it revealed something I want to do. And that is say, I don't need that law. I want to be free and I want to do it on my own. So I drove 65 here. So I'm not sure if God's going to bless this message or not. I hope he will. So the law, first of all, two things. Number one, the law is good, but the law is limited. It cannot fix your problems. It only reveals, and it reveals that which is deep within Bob and all of us, that indwelling sin, that sin nature that says, I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. Uh, Kids, do you ever experience that in families? Parents, do you ever see that in your children? Well, it's in me as well. But then thirdly, I want to say that the law is obsolete. The law is obsolete. That's why it's a little tough to study that which is obsolete. Kind of want to get onto other things. We're going to. But the foundation is that which is good, but limited, yet obsolete. Did you uh, see the movie Hidden Figures? You can go ahead and say yes, raise your hand. Any kind of response would be good at this point. (laughs) Hidden Figures, to me, was a great movie nominated for an Oscar last year. And uh, Hidden Figures had a a lot of plots involved in it. It uh, obviously was dealing with a space race between the USA and Russia in the 60s. Ann and I were living junior high and high school in those times. And uh, in 69, actually, it was a great thing when we landed Armstrong and team on the moon. A big, big deal. But there were some other plots in Hidden Figures. There was the prejudicial plot between the African-American and the white. Remember, the three brilliant uh, African-American gals would have to run uh, all the way to another building to find a woman for the colored folk as it was described. That's what was going on in America in those days. But there was one other plot that I find fascinating, and it was about the uh, computers. And I did just a little thought on this because there was a computer that was brought in. Actually, it had to be uh, brought in through an enlarged section. The door was not even big enough to have this transistor-based computer come into this large room. They had to enlarge, knock out the door. It was so big. And uh, I didn't know this, but I discovered that it was the 7090 transistor-based computer. And if you were to rent that according to the cost or put it, appraise it at the cost of today, that single computer in today's evaluation would cost over $500,000 per month to rent. It was that valuable of a new computer type. And so they, uh, they used it because it had the capacity of calculating at about 24,000 items per second. And that just seemed astronomical to NASA. And so they used that. And, uh, but what I find out is that uh, that had some limitation to it as technology improved. In fact, now what I'm going to put out is this little doohickey. This is called an iPhone. And this little iPhone 6S is quite amazing. In fact, as I discovered it, it's able to process instructions at the rate of 3.36 billion per second. 
So if you were to actually deal with Apollo spaceships at this particular juncture, you could actually send into space 120 million of them at the same time with this little computer. Isn't that amazing? What does that say? Well, it says that the 7090 is a little bit obsolete. And it would, this equals 32,000 7090 computers. Isn't that amazing? And here I can just put it away in my pocket. What does it say about the 7090? It's obsolete. But was it good? Absolutely it was good, but it was limited, yes, to in that time, and it finally had used up its purpose, but it was very, very good at that time. That's the way the law is to be seen. It was very, very good and accomplished God's purpose at that time. Now, I'm going to have David, if he would, please, to put on the screen this Old Testament uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 here. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. We're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. That's around 1500 B.C. You know, you have Abraham about 2,000. You've got David at 1,000. And you have Mo Moses at Mount Sinai around 1500 B.C. Now, even that first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. Why? Because God wanted to say, I want to be with you. You chose an independent route in Genesis chapter 3, but I want to be with you. I long for fellowship, but you've got to understand something. I'm holy. I'm that holy other that is totally separate, distinct, dynamic, and powerful, self-existing one. I'm called Yahweh over 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And that is a term that according to the Ten Commandments, they were scared to death of. In fact, they were so scared of seeing God that holy and that self-existent and independent and different that they refused to even mention his name. So they took the vowels of Adonai, in Hebrew it means Lord, and they put those with the consonants of Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, and they came up with a word that they felt they could use that would not bring God's judgment in case they said it in vain. Jehovah is that compound word that's not biblical, but that's what they came up with. And so what God wants to do in this whole furnishing idea is to show that he wants to be with them, and through the physical, he's going to show something much deeper, the internal. God does not like to deal with external merely, but as a copy, as a facsimile of what he really wants to do on the inside. And so throughout this, you'll see this furniture, but don't get, don't get your ball lost in the weeds, folks. You've got to see that there's something deeper to all of this. All right, so for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Do we have a picture of that that we can throw up there? Because I want you to see this. There we go. I want you to see this. Obviously, it seems archaic, and yes, it is obsolete. But hang with me a minute, because you'll see what God's doing from the external to the internal. This is a, about 150 feet long, that's all. The tent, the white curtain on the outside to protect from, but showing purity. The, the width was about 75 feet, that's all. 
And this is where in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost sanctuary tabernacle, that's where God would uh, reveal his presence. And as we sang about, it was such an incredible presence that this high priest who would go in there only one time a year, he would actually take coals from that altar, which is at the first part when you walk in there, that's seven by seven, about five and a half feet high, with four horns sticking out in the corners, where that animal was sacrificed, he would take the burning coals, and he would go into that on the Day of Atonement one time a year, into that innermost sanctuary, and he would put this uh, incense with it, and it would create all of this smoke, and I guess you could call it holy smoke. <laughs> Seriously. No joking, no pun intended. It was holy smoke. And that would actually be sort of a barrier between the blood sacrifice on the mercy seat by the high priest, which he would do like seven times just with the bull before he got to the two goats. And that would provide that, that protection, in a sense, from that which was so incredibly awe-inspiring, the glory of God. You see, the glory of God and the presence of God is an expression of all who God is, all of his characteristics, all of his attributes. And what happens is that releases itself, it expresses itself in, in a glory that is, it can't be taken in fully by us. It would consume us. So, the, the, so we're talking about God revealing himself and saying, I want to be with you. I want to show you this. Now, watch this. Follow me through on this. In this picture, you go through this 30-foot wide gate, almost half the width, and you go through that, and you bring an animal because we offended God, and, and sin needed to be paid for. And Leviticus 17 says that life is in the blood. And so the life of an animal, the blood was sacrificed in order to pay or cover cover our wrongdoing. So the Jew, and by the way, there were a lot of them. They went from 70 when they went to Egypt initially through Joseph, and then Jacob joined them, about 70, to about two and a half to three million. I mean, they were reproductive people, and God just blessed them incredibly. And uh, so there were all of these Jews, and here was this place that God said, I'm going to reveal my presence, and I want fellowship with you. So they would bring, in order to bring, remove that separation, they would, they would bring that animal. And it could be a number of animals. It could be a bull, if you had a lot of money, or an ox, or a ram, or a lamb, or a goat. If you were extremely poor, you could even take things like inexpensive birds like a turtle dove, or even the least of which was a pigeon. And you would take it to that altar, and the, uh, the priest from the tribe of Levi, he would uh, say, uh, as he tied that animal to one of those horns, tethered it, he would, uh, he would say now to the Jew, take your hands, place your hands on the head of that animal, and say, this animal now I am transferring to my sins. All my sins are being transferred to this animal. And then that animal was, as you know, sacrificed. The blood was 
sprinkled about the altar, and the animal was actually on that burnt offering, the brazen, the bronze altar. He was, that animal was consumed there. And then now watch this. You go from the sacrifice which was meant to reconcile and cover sin. And the priest would then, not the Jew, but the priest would then go to that bronze laver. That was a huge bowl made of bronze that reflected through that water uh, you, which you're like. Anyway, there's that portion of cleansing in that laver. And then after the cleansing, notice that progression, the sacrifice, then the sort of the consecration, the cleansing. And then you would go into that big tent area. The outer tent area was uh, the uh, holy place. And there they had three significant things. The, if you see on that left side, you see the multi-shooted uh, menorah. That's the lampstand. Why? Because God wanted to communicate the fact that the people of Israel are to be a light to the world. He chose them to be a holy priesthood, and they were to be a light to the nations. And so the light was to be that ultimately fulfilled in whom? In Jesus Christ, who in the book of John, one of his I am's, I am the light of the world. This Jewish Messiah became that light, and he is living in you and me who know Jesus Christ, and we are to be the light of the world by his enlightenment in us. Matthew chapter 5, the salt and light of the world. To the right, you have the showbread or that table made of acacia wood. And there would be 12 flat loaves, circular pancake loaves of bread, one rep representing each tribe. And the priests would eat those. Remember, the Jew could not go in there. Only the Aaronic priesthood, tribe of Levi, could go in and actually participate in that fellowship. And it was to simply communicate this. You follow me. I'll support, I'll sustain, I'll provide your necessity of life. Even your, pray in this manner, give us this day our daily bread. And so the showbread showed that. And then you also have that altar of incense, that gold altar of incense, in which the, uh, not on the Day of Atonement, but I, I, there's a different view on this, but that altar was outside of the Holy of Holies, uh, for the 364 days, but for that one day, it was inside the, on the Day of Atonement, the Holy of Holies. But on the other, it was the holy place. And it was there that the priests would fellowship and worship and sing, eat the bread, see that their nation is to be the light of the world. God wants relationship with you and me. It's not the exterior. And if you're not careful as a Christian, you can get caught up today just in the externals and not get on with the internal, the fellowship, the holiness of God, the depravity of man, and what Jesus did to bring us close. And you've got to keep that in mind. And then on that one day, the high priest, only the high priest, imagine that, God is so holy, and he had to have all these vestments, and they were so afraid that the guy might be killed entering into the presence of God that they put little bells, you know, on his, uh, on his vestments so that they could hear him continuing to move, and uh, he was okay. Uh, but he would do all these elaborate and intricate uh, sacrifices with the mercy seat uh, by putting the blood for his own family 
uh, from the bull, from the bull, he would take the coals, and and then he would take that hyssop, that branch, and he would sprinkle the blood seven times just for himself and for his family. Then he would t- then the sins of all Israel. He would on that mercy seat of gold. And I'll talk about that in a minute. He would also uh, slay a goat. And, and use that blood, but also, as you have heard, of the scapegoat. That's a common term we use today. He's just a scapegoat that came from here. Because they would place, the high priest would place his hands in identification of sin, their sin, unintentional sin, upon that goat, and then they would carry that goat for the nation, representing their sin, into the wilderness, so far that the goat could not find his way back. And that was their way of saying, our sin has been covered and removed from us. Now, that is a a quick picture of furniture. Not the kind of furniture Ann likes to buy, but the kind of furniture in an exterior way, in a symbolic way, God was showing that he wants to have fellowship with us. And uh, one of the things I would say as well, you've heard that inside that... Ark of the Covenant, made famous by Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think Chris may have said that. It's true. But you had the, uh, inside that Ark, you had things like uh, tablets representing God's law to which they were accountable, and he would judge uh, on the basis of their obedience. It had uh, Aaron's almond branch, Somewhere in Numbers chapter 16 and 17, you had the sons of Korah raising a big rebellion. And God said, you better listen to me. I picked my leaders. And it's not the sons of Korah. It's from the tribe of Levi, the Aaronic priesthood. And the sons of Korah with 250 people rebelled and God fired them up with fire, burned them alive. And it's pretty serious stuff. And so then another, in the next chapter, there was a big rebellion and thousands of people were killed. It was just simply to say, I picked Aaron. And when I pick somebody, I'm going to use that person. And uh, so all tribes bring uh, your branch, your almond branch before me. And they all did. Dothan and Abijah and all these people. And they brought all these almond branches, and God said, the one that sprouts, that's the tribe through whom I will work. And uh, so they all brought them, and guess what happened? Aaron's almond branch not only sprouted, it budded, it blossomed, and it bore fresh, full almonds. It was God's way of saying, I'm going to go overboard on this and show you these are the people that are going to represent me before the people. The priest represented the people before God, and the Aaronic priesthood was to do that. Okay, so that's what you have with all of that, and you have the the cherubim, you have the angels, the highest-ranking angels, observing the grace and the mercy of God as that blood would cover sin on the mercy seat. Now, I've said all of that, And you're probably saying, wow, we really don't have that much time left. And you haven't even really looked at the scripture. You're exactly right about that. But I want you to say, I want you to see that what God is doing through all of this that is described in verses 1 through 10 as not only the furniture, but the functioning of the priests, you see the symbolic revealing 
God's love for his people and desire to engage in fellowship. You see, the external, but God is still interested in the meaning, the reality of the internal. And uh, even through the ritual, God is saying, there's something coming. There's something that is not yet fulfilled. And that's what you see in 11 through 14. So what I'm going to do, if we can put that up, in verses 11 to 14 of Hebrews, you see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But, but when Christ appeared, those are the four important words. What a contrast. Because here you have, as John the Baptist saw him, behold the lamb, behold the sacrificial, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world permanently. And so what you have in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 14, he appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not the earthly tabernacle in the wilderness, that is to say, and not of this creation, not through the temporary use of sacrificial animals, but through his own precious blood, which has incredible value without blemish, without contamination through indwelling sin. He entered the holy place once for all. You hear that? Once for all. It's, here's the way I would put it. Have you heard what college basketball players do? If they're really good like Kevin Durant, you know what they do? What's it called? One and done. That's Jesus. One sacrifice and it's done. Once for all to gain that eternal redemption. Let's keep going on that. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, that was, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but that red heifer, if you touched a dead corpse, there was the law that said only the ashes could cleanse you with water uh, from that sin. Sprinkling those who have defiled, sanctified, cleansing of the flesh. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your what? Your external? No. Your internal, where there is guilt where there's actually sorrow and grief over the way I have lived. And what Jesus says is, I care about you, Bob. I care about every one of you in this audience today, that you understand that it was God who made you. It was you. It was I who moved away from God. And God took the initiative to engage us again, and he provided the way. He took that initiative to do that through his own son. He was willing to go through that painful separation for us that we might be again with him. And we don't have to go through dead works, going through this ritual and this regimen all continually in order to try to appease our hurting and grieving and guilty conscience. No. Let's get away from that. Now, what's important about that? When you understand the Hebrews who had come to Christ, that's why this book is written, folks. When you understand those Jews, you understand that they're getting persecuted for saying, this is the ultimate one and done sacrifice. This is who has taken away the sin of the world and mine as well. I don't have to go into that. Now, he is saying, as he's being persecuted by a Roman world under Nero, who happened to have invented the Roman candle. Roman candle was taking a Christian, perhaps a Jewish fulfilled Messianic Christian, right? Jesus. They trusted in him. He would take them, tie them to a stake, 
pour paraffin or wax over them and then light them in his backyard gardens and fry them. The original Roman candle. These people were saying, I don't want to do that. So I'm going to go back to that which is my safety zone where people accepted me more. I'll go back to my old religion rather than stick out and stand up and speak up for Jesus Christ. That's what I'll do. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Stick with it. Now, in verses 15, in verses 15 through 28, you have some uh, incredible benefits. And this I just want to cover in closing. And then I'll ask us a couple penetrating questions. In this closing section, in verse 15, for this reason he, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, is the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. For this reason he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption, for the purchase, literally, of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. One and done eternal. It's a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new deal between God and man through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Now, hear this. If I was to describe the entire Old Testament experience, it would go something like this. I have a note at the bank, and that note's going to come due in a year. But because of the circumstances of my life, I just can't gather enough money to pay off that debt. So I beg for an extension. That extension is given to me for another year. The same circumstances plague me. I cannot pay off my debt. So they give me another extension, and year after year after year, it just goes on and on and on, an extension is given, and my payment is postponed yet covered. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament law. That's the old system. It was, it was covered, but not removed, totally paid for. Jesus, once for all, paid for our salvation with his own sacrifice at Calvary. Let's go on. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. I won't go into this, but what he's talking about is the inadequacy of the blood of the calves and the goats, but the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ did. In fact, now that we have this new covenant, we see something else in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 22, if we can go there. Chapter 9, verse 22, complete forgiveness. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Christ unblemished, untainted blood. The precious blood of the Lamb was poured out for you and me. That through that blood, and Leviticus 17, life is in the blood. He gave his life, poured out his blood for you and me. That we might have eternal forgiveness. And so what we, what we also have at the end of this, and let's go on to the last section. We have future salvation. Salvation is past, it's present, and it's future. Past from the penalty of sin, present from the 
present from the power of sin and future for the actual presence of sin. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Continue. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, once for all, once and done. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year, it's different with Jesus. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Next. And inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Here's my personal question. Do you know him? You know Christ. For years, I went to a Southern Baptist church in Austin, a very, very good one. And I heard the gospel, but I was kind of turned off by my family and some of the practices and all that kind of stuff. And so I saw the externals, and I never really got to the internal. What I want you to know is that Jesus really did die for me if I was the only person living. But he died for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation, that, that sacrifice that pleased God and calmed his wrath over our offense of sin. And I came to Christ, and I want you to know that he paid for the penalty of my sin. Have you done that? Have you realized that Christ loves you so much that he took your place at Calvary? That which you deserved, he paid for and was separated from his father with whom he had been with for eternity and became that brazen altar, that sacrifice, and died in our place. I always thought it was something about church, but it's not. Church is just the manifestation and the response we have to a relationship. Church is made for people who want to worship because of a relationship provided by Christ and the Father. So I ask you, do you know him? If you do, then this is what you have to look forward to. He will appear a second time for salvation, not from the penalty for the penalty of sin. That's done. History, when we put our trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But have you, are you looking forward because he's removed your sin for that salvation from the actual presence of sin into his presence for eternity? That's what he's going to do. And I want to warn you about one thing. If you haven't, if you haven't, I just plead with you. Look at what it says. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's no reincarnation. We've been to India six times. We've ministered in the caste system. There is no reincarnation. Look at what God's Word says. Now is your time to put your trust in the Lamb of God who will take your sin away as he's paid for it entirely once and done. Would you put your trust in Christ? And then the second thing, and uh, Paul's going to come in just a moment after I pray and John will sing. The second thing I want to say is this. It's always about the heart, folks. It's not about a ritual or regimen. It's not about the external. Conscience is mentioned. 
heart throughout the scriptures. I like Isaiah 66, using some Old Testament scripture. God says, but to this one, 66 too, but to this one I will look. To him who is, to, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. It's always about contrition, the condition of the heart. Are you that way? Are you supple and soft before God? Or are you going through a compartmentalization system of New Testament Christianity? How sick is that? Jesus throws up over that kind of stuff. He died that there might be a place of true fellowship and communion and joy and the Spirit leading you to obey, to show Him you love Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, we have our, as our ambition to be pleasing to Him, not just to obey Him, to be pleasing to Him. It's all about relationship. Do you know Him? Are you living that way as a church member, as a person who may want to join South Spring? We welcome you, but we welcome you into a fellowship of Christ who loves you this much, this much. Relationship over ritual forever and ever until we're taken home to be with him, absent from sin entirely. Pray with me. Father, we come to you thanking you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for creating us in your image relationally and seeking to engage again with us. Even though you are holy, we can be holy as we put our trust in Christ and, and get clothed in his righteousness. And how thankful we are for that. So we fear you in a right way, and we come to you now. We confess our sin to you now, or we come to join the church, or to put our trust in Christ, whatever it might be. Father, work in our hearts. That's what you care about most. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.